AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music. And lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's peewee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Hey, everybody. This is John Middlecoff from 3 and Out with John Middlecoff. Superchargers, headlights, and more. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. With over 122 million parts and eBay guaranteed fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Or your money back. Plus, with prices that don't break the bank, you can stay on your A-game. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The Volume. Charles Darwin. The nerves is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brebert and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today we are going to be reacting to the latest edition of all of these second round series, starting with a huge bounce back win for the Lakers. Obviously got embarrassed, blown out in game two, came back and gave the Warriors the same treatment on their home floor now. So Logan, what did you think was the biggest key to this huge Lakers win. It had to be Anthony Davis. I mean, I thought Anthony Davis completely wrecked this game defensively uh, mm-hmm. and tipped this in scale of the Los Angeles Lakers. I mean, I, I don't think this was a game that the Golden State Warriors were going to win. Uh, just with how they played, they lost a three-point battle, 13-44 to 15-31. I think that's fundamental to what the Warriors need to do in this series. But it starts with how the Lakers defended the Steph pick and roll and what Anthony Davis did uh, exactly to slow that down. It was a lot more hard hedges, a lot more AD being aggressive, getting into passing lanes. And I was just really impressed with how he was able to wreck it, getting, you know, one, interrupting the passes, but two, getting back and collecting himself on defense so the defense could reset. And then if the Lake, or excuse me, if the Warriors at any time in this game tried to get downhill, you've got AD camped in the lane, ready to pack <laughs> pack that you know what uh four blocks three steals in this game and I just thought physically overall I was really impressed with Anthony Davis this is a guy that last show I mean you talked about it Carson Anthony Davis is not a guy that deals with physicality well and I thought he really dealt with the physical challenge tonight and the demand of that really well tonight from the start of this game dude I was scared uh you have a hard foul with Jermichael Green you have Draymond really being physical with him and I thought 
when AD went to the ground early in that game and uh, the camera zoomed up real close to him and you see AD kind of gritting, I'm like, I, I don't like this body language. I don't like this from AD. And I just worried that the Warriors could just out-physical him and X him out in that way. He didn't. He answered. He responded. And the Lakers all cumulatively played really hard tonight. Not early. They allowed 40 points in the first 16 minutes. They really clamped down like a vice grip. Uh, as this game goes along. But I want to get back into the Steph pick and roll and how AD playing this really affected them too because you think about it. This is an unguardable set in theory, right? Steph Curry, touch all over the floor, can kill you from anywhere. If you don't X Steph out and hard, uh, hard hedge or switch and you give him that, Steph's going to burn you every time to get you a bucket. Okay, so you hard hedge, little short pass, uh, little short roll pass, uh, to Draymond or whoever the role man is. AD is getting back over there and collecting themselves. So they take that action away. And normally this, the there's not going to be a scorer on the roll guy. But that secondary pass too. I thought the Lakers did a great job at closing out on those shooters too. And if those shooters aren't making shots, which they didn't collectively tonight, it's just going to be hard. You X stuff out and you're forcing other guys to beat you. Clay, 5 of 14, 3 of 9 after a great game in game two. Uh, Jamichael Green is not hitting open looks, and nobody really was hitting shots from deep outside of Steph. The Warriors have to make perimeter shots because they're not going to be able to get anything inside. It's just going to be hard. And I thought, too, one, to stick on Jordan Poole for a second. Classic Jordan Poole game, 2 of 9, 0 of 4 from deep. Oh, I wanted to punch the television when Jordan Poole took that 30-foot transition three early in this game, too. I just, it kills me, man. That's that's not your shot, Jordan. You're not Curry, man. It's transition. Try to get to the bucket, please. Um, some other big keys, I thought, in this game. Classic dubs, road, mishap. A lot of bad mental mistakes, ugly turnovers, 19 turnovers to LA's 12. And again, another big key to this series, and we talk about physicality in these teams, they lose the free throw battle here. And that's not something that you box score watchers. It's not how the refs are officiating these games. It's, again, how these offenses <laughs> get their offense. If you're not getting downhill, you're not going to get as many free throw attempts. The Lakers, again, I thought, did a tremendous job at getting downhill, at attacking the cup. You're just inherently going to get more free throws, 37-17. to 17. That's not something that's going to be easy for Golden State to change. But I thought the biggest key to this game, shout out Anthony Davis, what he was able to do defensively. And honestly, too, big credit to D'Lo. I know he got hot early, but mm-hmm. I thought he did a really good job at getting downhill, creating for others, but also just breaking up bad stretches for the Lakers and came up big and knocking down shots. Lonnie Walker, too. Um, some, some big games from the role, guys, but I thought the biggest of all, uh, Anthony Davis wrecked this game physically on both ends for the Lakers, and that was really the big difference maker. They slowed down the Steph pick and roll, and that's probably the toughest task in basketball. So big credit to Anthony Davis, big bounce back game from him after a really disappointing game, too. That's where you have to start, and he in so many ways defines the ceiling of this team on both ends, and it was just a better game from him in every single way. Obviously, we saw in game two the consistency with which he was abandoning the roller and enabling Draymond to dissect the Laker defense off the short roll. This game, I thought, as you said, a phenomenal job of hedging, but putting himself in a position where he's a big guy, takes up a lot of space, able to recover to the roller as well, and the activity of his hands throughout this game. Obviously, four blocks. I mean, he is on one of the great shot-blocking runs in this postseason that we've seen this century, over four a game, and such an unrivaled deterrent in the paint in today's NBA. 
But the three steals and God knows how many more deflections. Like, he just was taking away passing angles throughout. He was making people completely uncomfortable trying to finish on the interior. And he dominated this game and was aggressive, better on the boards, 13 rebounds after we saw him underachieve there in game two. But offensively was as stark of a difference, if not more. Because what I have always said about AD is that the foundation of his greatness offensively is the fact that he can be a dominant scorer in that restricted area because of what he can do as a lob threat. And then everything that you see from him with the skilled shot making, the push shots, the turnarounds, that's always been like the garnish. That's what can take him up to that 35 a night level. But to make him an efficient 25-plus point bringing guy, it is I am rolling hard to the bucket and finishing aggressively around the rim. Now, this year has been the best he's ever been with that skilled shot making. And so he started to rely on it more and more, and he's become a better post scorer overall. But this game... He did not mess around, man. I mean, I thought that he was rolling hard to the rim. They were hitting him with beautiful pocket passes, a couple of lobs. He had that one tough catch early from LeBron and then a good finish through contact. And at that point, I felt like this is going to be a really good AD game. I mean, you often can tell, dude, about his mentality and his energy. And we talked after game one and said, all right, the best things that the Warriors can probably do to try to take away this dominant AD is involve him as much as you can in pick and roll, bring him out of the paint, create a lot of four-on-three situations for yourself, and then put Draymond on him on the other end. And they did those two things in game two, and he took a big step back. And those were both contributors. But I think more than anything else, it was AD himself. And the fact that his effort was not at the top level defensively, his IQ there wasn't what you expect from him normally. And offensively, he was not embracing the physicality. He got just outplayed in terms of tenacity. And he was relying on his skilled shot making. And it wasn't there. And so he kind of just faded offensively. Not in this game. 7 of 10 from the field, takes 12 free throws, and it wasn't just as a roller. He was way more physical himself. I would say unusually physical for AD out of that post area. And obviously, I think the two blocking calls on Draymond were pretty questionable. I think they both should have been offensive foul calls, but nevertheless, that's physical AD, and he was rewarded for it within this game. So, I mean, the guy is currently at one of the highest defensive peaks we've ever seen. I think his versatility, his sheer dominance as a rim protector, and again, that ability to take away passing lanes, to deflect the ball, to create steals, is something that not a lot of big men have at his level throughout NBA history. And that's why I've said for years, he's the best defensive playmaker in the NBA, generating those stocks. And I think he's just the best defensive player alive right now. I gave Draymond that acknowledgement after this regular season. I cannot deny this level that we've seen these last 10 games. The guy is changing every game when he's dialed in on that end. But it was just an overall much better defensive effort. I mean, much more dialed in collectively than game two. The supporting cast stayed attached, much better off ball. And if you look at some of the areas that are effort-based, right? Transition defense, your ability to close out on shooters, to stay attached, chasing clay around screens... Across those three phases, transition, spot up, off screen, in game two, the Warriors scored 70 points. In this game, they got just 44 points combined. And you also have to look at the second quarter, that 22-2 run as the key turning point in this game. And it was a combination of things. I thought it was a really high level defensively from AD. I thought it was poor offense in terms of shot selection, 
in terms of taking care of the ball by the Warriors. And then I thought it was the Lakers' ability to capitalize in transition. Nine transition points in that quarter, seven of them from LeBron. And so it was just the spiral. And then, of course, you do have the abundance of free throws for the Lakers in that specific stretch. And I will say, Logan, I did not love how the game was officiated in that particular six-minute stretch or so. I was sitting there watching with my 88-year-old grandfather, who's a big Warriors fan, and my God, it was as distressed as I've ever seen an individual by the refs as I've seen in my life. I literally heard him mutter at one point, it used to be a game I enjoy. <laughs> like, the man was broken, and I think a lot of Warriors fans probably share that sentiment. And like I said, that offensive foul on AD that was overturned, I thought that was an aggressive lowering of the shoulder, should have stayed an offensive foul. The... Blocking foul in the early third on Dre, which was, at that point, his fourth foul, and then he got his fifth shortly after, I believe. I thought that that could have been a charge, definitely. You have the three-second call on DiVincenzo on that LeBron post-up at the end of the second, which I didn't love. And then you have a couple of texts, right? So it did spiral in part because of the free throws and the officiating in that stretch, but this was a 30-piece, Logan. Like, you just cannot attribute it to that. The Lakers outplayed them in every phase of this game. They dominated in the physicality arena. They outshot them. I mean, they were nails from beyond the arc, 48%, and the dubs were way off, under 30%. And they outdefended them. Their stars were really good in this game. You have the special shot making from D'Lo. So, yeah, that was a turning point, and I can understand some frustration with the officiating, but fundamentally that free throw gap is because of what you said. It is a play style thing. That gap will continue to exist. I understand it didn't in game two when a bunch of Dubs fans thought, oh, look what happens when the game is officiated fairly. This will remain a series in which the Lakers have a huge advantage at the line, as it should, but that wasn't even the difference maker in this game. The Lakers were just way better, and I thought responded in a really, really impressive way to a lot of the shortcomings that we saw from them in Game 2 and some of the ways that they were exploited. I just want to add some additional numbers to what you were saying about the Lakers' effort in transition, too, because I was exactly where I was going to go to next. That's such a big part of the Dubs' offense, too, is turning defense into offense. One, the Lakers being physical and aggressive, like I noted, it stops bleeding. It hurts the offense. They can't get into transition. It slows the game down fundamentally. The Warriors want to play fast. They want to play up-tempo. That's where the Lakers are out of their element. When you have a more grimier game like this, a lot slower pace where the Lakers are dictating it, that's where they want to be. And again, I thought, too, when they did have mishaps on that end, the Lakers just showed so much more heart and grit and getting back. Like you mentioned, dude, this is a Warriors team that in transition in game two, nearly 182 points per play. That's the 96th percentile of teams in these playoffs in this game. Again, transition is where the Warriors are going to need to win. 25 points per play. I mean, they completely X them out in that regard. And again, that's something that has to change um, in the Warriors' favor. Again, that happens too when you're playing great defense. Uh, the Warriors struggled at that end of stopping anything. But it's crazy to me how differently the Lakers can look when they are really locked in engaged and they're giving all of this effort night to night. It's still insane to me, but this ceiling that we saw from the Lakers and continue to see when they are locked in and engaged is why they're my title favorite for a, a few reasons. I think they have the highest defensive ceiling out of any team remaining. They put pressure on the rim 
better than any team remaining. And again, there are just things that translate to winning playoff basketball. And those are the foundations of it. Consistent scoring throughout the game when you've got a lot of guys who can attack the paint, be physical, get downhill. And when you can just clamp up the other team, and I think they have the personnel to do it from the Schroeders, from the Delos, from the Lonnie Walkers tonight when they're locked in. And on the back line, I mean, you've got two of the best, you know, you've got AD, who's, again, I think the best defensive player on the planet, and LeBron, too, is a great help side guy. Like, I think we saw a lot of hustle from LeBron, too, tonight. I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. But that is why the Lakers are probably my title favorite right now. And, again, I don't – some people will see this, oh, we, we get a couple of good games out of the Lakers, and everybody wants to hop on the bandwagon. And, hell, man, me and Carson built a bandwagon. We put it together, man. Uh <laughs> I think there's just tenets of things that are consistent and reliable in basketball, and it starts with defense and interior scoring, and I just think the Lakers have the edge over any team remaining in the field on those sides. And again, if you've been listening to Nerd Sesh these past three, four shows, even further than that, we continue to hammer home the point that LeBron has not needed to take over, and I think that is, one, still very encouraging, uh, that we have a wealth of creators that we can turn to night to night. We have a good D'Lo night, a good Reeves night, a good Schroeder night, a good Hachimura night. That's a wealth that LeBron has not had in his career. He's had to take over. He's had to be the guy. I'm just, I want to see that switch flip because I'm just, honestly, I kind of miss him, Carson. I kind of miss you, LeBron. I miss watching that guy night to night. But he doesn't have to do that, and we still have, he's being able to rest up, man. We're able to let him get into beast mode. Uh, the Lakers are my title favorite, and there's a lot of reasons why. The, de- the depth of creators, the defensive ceiling, the interior scoring, I just think it translates against any team that they will match up with down the line. I love what I saw from the Lakers tonight, and again, I just want to see it night to night, quarter to quarter. And I don't want to see them turn the switch off because I know that's what the Lakers like to do. They like to have a game like this, and then I don't want to see them sleepwalk through this next one. I want to see it. I want to see it consistently, but I was very impressed, especially just defensively and physically tonight, man. I don't think there's a team that can compete with the Lakers in both of those realms when they are locked in and fully engaged. This is why you believe in this team, and this is why we both picked them to win this series, and I will say this was a really good LeBron game. Like, yes, he didn't impose his complete control on the game, but you had the early stretch where he was creating great looks for his teammates, driving and kicking. Then you had the overall transition dominance in this game where he was super opportunistic, 13 points in transition. His jump shot, he didn't rely on heavily, but it was solid. He knocks down two of four threes. He had a couple of really nice finds from the post where, again, you know that he is a physicality mismatch for anybody who's going to be guarding him on this Warriors team. And even though when he tried to score, he got stripped by Clay that one time, he still created good looks out of the post. So, He was really good defensively, too, and that has been impressively consistent from LeBron throughout these playoffs. The level that he has reached as that secondary rim protector, I think he has 15 blocks in this playoff run, and then some of the effort plays, like that one where he went 10 rows into the stands in that transition play, jumping, making a DB play on that ball intended for, I believe it was Wiggins. That's just awesome stuff to see from him, and at 38, This was a really good LeBron game. He weaponized his physicality. He played to his strengths without having to carry the entire load offensively. And when you get this level from D'Lo, dude, I mean, just absurd shooting in this game. Of course, he's erratic. He is like 
at peak hot and cold level right now. We've seen it in the splits between their wins and losses. Wins, he's 20-plus a night efficiently. Losses, he's under 10 a night very inefficiently. And you see it from stretch to stretch in these games because he is so reliant on that difficult shot making. But when he is on, and when you have good overall play from the guard core, this was a good Reeves game, not a massive offensive game, but he found a way without high-level shot making, getting to the line. Thought he was better defensively. Schroeder, I mean, knocked down three triples, was pretty good in this one. When those guys are on, when they do embrace the physicality and dial in defensively, I agree, nobody can reach their ceiling in those areas. And then when LeBron and AD play like this, because I thought this was as good of a collective game between the two of them as we've seen, they have probably shown the highest ceiling of anybody in this playoff run. They are inconsistent in terms of effort. This offense can fall into lulls if AD is not being aggressive enough and LeBron isn't asserting himself. The guards aren't always going to be super reliable. This team's spot-up shooting can absolutely leave them. And this also was a bad game from the Warriors. Like, there's no two ways about that. The Lakers played really well. The Warriors played poorly. They were off shooting 13-44 from deep. They were super undisciplined with the 19 turnovers. So this series will swing back and forth. But I do believe in the Lakers' ceiling. We've seen it too many times to deny. And you and I were believers before the playoffs. I feel better about this Lakers team now than I did coming into the playoffs. No question. Because this is a really impressive win among a handful of really impressive wins from them in these playoffs. So I'm not counting out the Warriors by any stretch of the imagination because we saw the level that they can reach offensively because of Steph Curry and the overall shooting ceiling that this team has and the decision-making of Draymond and their ability to go five out. I'm not taking any of that away. But right now, I feel that the Lakers with this two top 10 players ceiling, which is what it was tonight, their overall physicality being the best defense in the league and a good supporting cast, I think they're better and I think they have as high a ceiling as anybody in the NBA. Let's talk Suns Nuggets, Logan, because although that... Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's peewee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents... A new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. 
Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Game was yesterday. It was a very, very interesting one. Very exciting to watch. Borderline peak offense. Book goes crazy for 47, and KD is not far behind despite a really cold start to this one. What did you take away from this game, the Suns getting their first win, to cut that deficit to 2-1 in this series? I mean, shout-out Devin Booker, dude. I'll start. I'm not going to bury the lead. I mean, I just don't know how many guys in the league can do this right now, man. 47-6-9. 20 of 25. I mean, and, and like I want to put into context, man, it's not AD 7 of 10, you know, small volume, really efficient. Bro, this is tough shot making. These are tough looks. It's hard as fuck to do. I don't know any other way to put it. And I don't know how many guys in this situation, again, man, this is a this is a team that doesn't have really a point guard to set the offense up or to get them into motion. This is a team with a lack of impact guys outside of Devin Booker where you can really, really help off of them and, like, not pay attention to them. I mean, what, man, I'm going to give up a campaign, corner three? Yeah, I'll take that, sure. I, D-Book imposed his will on Denver, and this is something that I expected. I didn't expect two of the best scorers in the NBA, arguably the best scoring duo, to go out bad like this. You know, I expected them, this is what star players do in dire situations when you are down 2-0, I, this is gut check time when you got to say, we're not going out down bad like this. We have got to turn up for a game. We got to steal one. And they did. But what blew me away about this Devin Booker game is just the versatility of how he gets his shots, man. Start off with a floater. You get a pull-up jumper. He backs down KCP in the post and gives him a little touch shot. Got a catch-and-shoot three, a fading three, a pick-and-roll mid, uh, midi. You get a post turnaround. You got a blow by to the basket for a lefty layup. You get a contact finish over MPJ, another midi pull up. You get 12 points in transition. I I don't know if there's a scorer in the NBA today that has the depth of a bag of Devin Booker in how many ways he can score his points so damn efficiently. And then you couple this. This isn't even talking about what Devin Booker can do off the ball as a cutter, um, as a guy who's spot up, coming off pin downs. Like, this is D-Book imposing his will as a ball handler. I mean, without Chris Paul dictating the offense, without Kevin Durant, man, if D-Book wanted to do this every night, I'm not saying he's going to 47-piece, but I think D-Book could give you 30 a night really damn efficiently, and he's done that and more in these playoffs. I don't know a scoring stretch that I can point to in playoff history that has been like this. And granted, I have not been on the planet as long as some of you basketball viewers. Uh, I'm a ripe 21 years of age, but in my... 10-plus years of basketball watching, this is as as impressive as a scoring stretch as I have ever seen. In these playoffs, 37-5-7 on 60-49-88 splits. That's 60% on pull-up jays. That's 59% on fadeaways. That's 57% on jumpers. That's 59% out of the mid-range, 78% in the restricted area. StatMuse put out a great tweet earlier today. He's first in transition points, first in isolation points, first in points off drives, first in pull-up jumpers, first in mid-range points. Look, man, if the Phoenix Suns are going to go out down bad because uh, Chris Paul's groin hurts, it's not going to be Devin Booker's fault, man. He's. It's not going to be on him. Like, 
D-Book is going to do everything in his power to get this team to where they need to go. And the ultimate goal is the NBA Finals. This is not even to dimension. Devin Booker is an awesome playmaker. He's a above-average defender. I wouldn't say great because night-to-night it differs. But when he's given effort, he's a damn good defensive guard, man. I, this is as impressed I've ever been with a, a single scorer in a single run and in a single game. I mean, like I said, dude, I don't know many guys that you can plop in this situation and give it to them. In that same breath, I want to give a lot of credit to Kevin Durant, too. 39-9-8 and eight in this game. And like you said, Carson... This is a game where it's not easy. You know, the pull-up jumper is not falling, and that's where, again, he does most of his work. 12 of 31 in this game, 1 of 5, 5 of 17 on pull-up jumpers, but he was great moving the rock, really good playmaking game, 8 assists to 0 turnovers, great defense. And I just thought, too, 16 free throws, man. When that shot is not falling, what do great superstars do? You find a way to be effective. He gets downhill. He gets to the rack. He makes sure that he's able to get into rhythm and get easy points. But on the grander scale of this, I mean, I think we have to look. Nobody outside of KD and Book are in double-digit points. 35 points were scored by the other eight guys in this rotation. It's just not sustainable. Um, I want to hear your... uh, I want to hear what you got to say on these top two guys' performances, but I do want to get into the weeds a little bit with what they should do with their rotations and some other guys uh, from Phoenix. This was just a special book night, and uh, I'm not talking about James. (laughs) Get that? James book night. Listen, I have been a book enthusiast for a long time, and two years ago I made a YouTube video on him being the most versatile scoring guard in the NBA, and I think you laid out why, dude. I mean... He can literally kill you from anywhere on the floor out of any action. He was a 91st percentile post-score this year, Logan. Like, the turnaround from him is deadly. The all-around mid-range shooting, he is 59% for mid-range in these playoffs. He is 60% as a pull-up jump shooter. He is one of the best pure shot makers that we have seen this century, and When he is at this level and KD is able to find a way, I mean, starts this game one of nine, but gets himself to the line consistently in that first half and eventually is able to have enough shot making and is able to play make at a high enough level that he does have a big impact on this game. This is the sun ceiling that we bought into. I do want to ask you this, though, because I've seen this question circulating a bit and I do think it's an interesting one. Who would you take right now? Devin Booker or Jason Tatum? It's a really good question. Um, I think I'd take Devin Booker, Carson, if I'm being honest. Like, I think that's I think that's probably a hot take considering most people. Uh, I think the consensus, I'm not sure where people come down on them. I mean, I think they think Tatum is an MVP candidate, a, you know, arguable maybe top five player in the world considering what the Celtics did in the regular season. I just think... It comes down to consistency for me with Tatum and Booker. It comes down to a few things, but consistency is where I'll start. I mean, Tatum night to night can disappear in ways I've never really seen Book disappear. And that's not a shot at Jason Tatum. I mean, I think at his peak, he's one of the best pull-up jump shooters in the game. He's one of the best pure shooters in the game. When he's imposing his will on the rack, when he's getting downhill too and creating for others, Tatum's ceiling is as high as anybody else's in this league. You couple that with great defense, but... I would give Book the edge in a couple of ways. 
Uh, I think Book is just more physical and he's more aggressive. He's willing to get downhill and get dirty a little more than Tatum. Get on the low block, do some post work. I think he's a better cutter. I think the biggest difference in between them is I think Book is definitively a better playmaker than Jason mm-hmm. Tatum in the way that Tatum is still prone. Uh, his handle's not as tight as Book, I don't think. I think Tatum is still prone to making more boneheaded mistakes. I think Tatum is more prone to zeroing in on his own game and just kind of just pigeonholing himself. Book is more consistent. I think he's a better playmaker, and I just don't see him disappear night to night where I think Tatum is prone to. And again, this is just... I also just don't think he's... God, I hate. I just hate nitpicking star players. I hate doing that. It's not something that I enjoy because I love these guys. Mm-hmm. I also think Book, in my opinion, you tell me if I'm wrong, Carson, I think Book is a guy who's a little more built for the moment. And I don't mean that as a shot at Jason Tatum, but in the clutch, we've seen Tatum and the Celtics crumble as a whole. And I just, I don't fear that with Devin Booker. I just think Booker is a gamer and a, a guy who's just more prone to take over and he's not prone to these big mistakes and crumbling under pressure and maybe this is this moment clouding me but again I mean this is just one of the greatest runs I've seen out of an individual player dude 37 on 60 48 88 splits I mean that's insane to to verbalize uh so I honestly I'd give book the slight scoring edge Carson I'd give him a big playmaking edge and I think the defensive gap isn't major enough to make that distinction. I'd probably give Tatum the slight advantage, but Book is a good defender. So I think it's probably not the consensus take. I think most people would probably take Tatum, but I think I'm going to go with Booker. Are are you with me, or or do you think I'm a a little overzealous with this? I could probably change my answer to this depending on the day. I think they're both firmly in that, like, 8th to 12th best player in the league range. I think Book has a couple of clear advantages. I think, like I said, he is a better, more versatile, pure shot maker. And his ability to kill you from the mid-range is at a level that Tatum doesn't have, even with his pull-up jump shooting from deep. And also the fact that you talk about being made for the moment, part of that is a mentality thing where you just have faith in Book being the ultimate assassin dog, right? Part of it is also a skill set thing. And I do think part of the reason that the Celtics clutch offense has fallen apart at times to a concerning extent is, yes, Tatum's decision-making. I agree, Book has the playmaking edge. Tatum has obviously grown there, but his struggles at times still handling traps and double teams does concern me. And Book's been a really good playmaker this season and in this run. But it's also, Book can get to his spot. And his spot is anywhere on the floor. But he can get you a mid-range look and hit that with 50-plus percent efficiency. Tatum's probably going to go to a step-back three in that crunch time situation, which just isn't as valuable if I just need you to get that one bucket. And so, Book's the better shot maker. Tatum is, though, I think the better downhill force overall because of his size advantage. Like, he's going to give you... This year, almost two more restricted area makes per game, a couple more free throw attempts. So he does have a really high ceiling because of that when his jumper is on and when he's getting downhill consistently, and he can impose himself a bit more on the game defensively. I don't want to be overly reactionary to this playoff run, but I don't really feel that it is because I've loved Devin Booker and his game for so long. I think I would slightly lean Booker because I trust that pure shot making game to game just a bit more. But 
I really think you can go either way on this, and I think they're two phenomenally talented young players. And by the way, guys who have already been the best player on a team to go to the finals, which is an incredibly impressive thing for Book is 26 and Tatum's 24. Like, a couple of really, really special talents. But, yeah, I mean, within the scope of this game, the Suns needed 86 points from Book and KD to barely eke out a win. Now, I will say, of course, the Nuggets were good offensively. I mean, Jamal was cooking as a pull-up jump shooter. He was cooking eight and off of switches. He was really just nailing those looks no matter what. I mean, Jokic finishes this one with 30-17 and 17, was dissecting and was unstoppable as a one-on-one scorer. But this offense is just always going to click, and the Suns don't have the personnel to take that away. And I think Aaron Gordon is a problematic matchup here too just because of his size and physicality and there were a couple spots in this game where he got great position sealed off a smaller defender and Jokic is going to find him he's going to make a hell of a pass if it's in transition or if Jokic is out at the top of the key in the half court so they're going to continue to really struggle to stop the Nuggets that doesn't go away but I do think a couple of these guys as much as this game for Phoenix was just about KD and Book do deserve credit First and foremost, Jock Landale and just his ability to fight and embrace the physicality. Obviously, we saw him get big-time minutes over Aiton in this game. Nine rebounds in 22 minutes. And I thought, outplayed Jokic on the glass. I know that Jokic ends up with 17 boards in this game. But I thought stole a couple from him. And I thought Jokic overall, this wasn't his best game on the glass uh, throughout. And then I also think TJ Warren getting more minutes, man. I mean, he has those two huge buckets that helped put this game on ice for Phoenix. Knocks down a three out of the corner, then attacks a closeout, gets a look on a floater. I mean, shocker, it helps to actually have an offensively skilled player in the weak side corner when the Nuggets have just been leaving that guy all series in order to be able to provide some additional help. So I thought that that was a good move by Monty to finally go to him. And even though it wasn't like he had a massive game overall, in the biggest moments, he had two big plays that the Suns needed because, I mean, the Nuggets were clicking offensively and made a surge back in this game in that third quarter. So I still think the Nuggets are better. I still think that Jokic is the best player in the series and they have the best supporting cast. But yeah, this shows you what Book and KD are capable of in tandem. A couple of guys actually stepped up in terms of the role players in a way that we haven't really seen in this playoff run for the most part. And I think Book continues to make his case as a top 10 player alive and show us what he's capable of on the playoff stage. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I don't want to take too big of a crap. I think uh, on on Aiden, I think you made a lot of good points there that uh, I agree with. I think Monty needs to play with these minutes a little more, give TJ some burn, give T. Ross some burn. I know he didn't shoot well in this one. They're just more skilled than the other guys that you're going to run out there, and they're bigger too, man. I mean, that matters. Like, I... They're not great defenders, but they can at least be a little more physical because of size. Like, screw Damian Lee, screw Landry Shamit, man. I Just put those guys on the bench, dude. And limit campaign minutes. I know you need them out there because CP's hurt. Um, the Landale thing is real, man. I, I just thought he just did a better job even than when Aiden was in there too, dude. And I'm just – Landale actually tweeted out, uh, you lay off my guy, DA. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what to tell you, man. I mean, we're going to – pick it apart we're gonna be critical um he, he looks disengaged and bro I mean go up hard like Landale went up hard in this game dude Landale played hard Landale played physical 
Bro smokes two layups against MPJ and Jamal Murray, bro. It's like, dude, I mean, yeah. go up hard, DA. I just – I'm disappointed, dude. I, I need – I think the Suns should make a move, dude. I think DA's playing himself out of town, and I think there's a lot of avenues to explore. Uh, one of my friends who's a Suns fan suggested, he said he'd like Miles Turner more than DeAndre Ayton. Um, he said if somehow if you could swing a trade for Pascal Siakam, I mean, my mouth, uh, I salivate at the idea of having Siakam in an offense like this with KD or, uh, you know, in D-Book. Like, I think it would be crazy. Really? I That's a I, lot of guys who really need the ball in their hands, I think. I mean, that's fair, but I mean, I think you can run pick and roll. I think Siakam could be a good short roll decision maker, has a little more creativity like that. Like, I just think it's, you're just so much more talented and a guy that has skill compared to DeAndre Ayton, a guy that's going to play harder. I don't know, man. I mean, if the Suns don't make a run here, I really do think DA could be playing himself out of town. It's embarrassing that a role player like this, I just thought definitively they were better in Landale minutes than with DA and... I think could be his way mm-hmm. to playing his way out of town. I mean, I'm just, again, I've been disappointed in almost every game with DeAndre Aiden in some way or somehow, and it's another one where I'm disappointed. Uh, and there's a thing about self-awareness. I think we talked about that clip last time where he's like, I don't know what you want me to do. Um, I don't know, DA, be better at basketball. Try. Uh, I'm disappointed. I, I keep waiting for a, a, a light bulb or a switch to flip, and I just don't think it's coming. I think a change of scenery might be nice for him, and I think the Suns just need somebody better to put them over the top. I know it's a lot. You've got Devin Booker and Kevin Durant, probably one of the best scoring duos of all time, and saying you need more, but they do, man, and a really good locked-in defensive center would go a far way, and I just don't think DA's ever going to be that consistently. Could you imagine if they had been able to put him in the KD trade instead of McCall? Like, Obviously, I'm sure they viewed him as an essential piece because they're like, man, we need a playable big and we're bringing in this incredible wing kind of guy. So maybe McCall's a bit of a redundancy, but he wouldn't have been. I mean, they need quality wings. And like you said, he's getting played off the floor by a big who already would have been there. So Aiton is a bad contract. I mean, the fact that he's owed over $100 million over the next three years is going to limit how this Suns team is able to build out this roster to some extent. And him and CP just can't be the third and fourth guys. This team absolutely can build a title contender around Devin Booker and Kevin Durant, but I just don't think it's this year. And as I've said, I do still think that Denver is better, but this was fun and they needed it and they were going to get one. There was going to be that game where you're just like, oh my God, this is why everybody still had them as the favorite to get out of the West. Like, well, not everybody had them, but they were the betting odds favorite. It's because of Devin Booker and Kevin Durant, and they did their thing in this game. Let's talk about Knicks Heat now, Logan, because Jimmy Butler returned, and the Miami Heat won this game by almost 20 while shooting under 40% from the field. (laughs) What did you take away from this? I don't know, man. I got to stop underestimating Miami, dude. I'm For real. I think first and foremost, I'm disappointed in the lack of athletic and physical advantage that the Knicks have not enforced over Miami. I still think it's an edge personnel-wise that they have, and I want to see the Knicks be more physical on both ends of the floor. That starts with what they're doing defensively and out of the pick and roll. Um, I mean, any of these guys are still running drop. They're still running... Like, they're just not getting up on these guys. I I still think that's an issue. Like, you don't want to give these guys any space. Guys, it's playoff basketball. And if you have a question as to what I mean, watch what Miami does on the other side of the ball. 
that's playing physical. That's putting a body on a guy at any time. And I think the refs, for most of the part in most of these series, have been, especially in this one, have been okay with letting these guys be a little more physical and not blowing the whistle. And Miami takes all they can get. I mean, Jimmy, Bam. Shout out Bam, dude. Bam had an awesome game in this one. They're just so much more physical with all of these guys. And that's just somewhere that I've been disappointed with the Knicks. Get up on a guy, don't give him an inch, don't give him any space, and don't give him any of these shooters. Now, this is an unconventional win for Miami, like you mentioned, Carson. Uh, One, they shoot abysmally from the floor, but they also don't shoot well from deep. I mean, they're Mm 7-32. I mean, it's just not the formula that we laid out that we thought was going to work. This was a game to me that New York has to win, and again, I thought they tried to play uh, Miami's game. A lot of threes, a lot of... uh, not as much getting downhill. I thought they tried. I thought Bam did a great job at not letting Julius Randle be a battering ram and getting downhill and forcing him uh, to back off. But the Knicks shoot 43s in this game. That's not your game, guys. Your game is creating shots inside the arc by collapsing the defense. I thought it was a lot of settling, and I thought it was bad decision-making uh, as well. Um, Brunson and Randle don't really create as well in this game. There's open guys I felt on the floor, especially early, where Struess is helping off of Josh Hart, where uh, Bam is helping off of Randle, too, and they just don't kick it out. They don't get the offense in motion. They take bad shots that don't lead to free throws. A few of them did, but uh, they need to play with their heads up. Um, But, I mean, just physicality-wise, I've been disappointed with, with the Knicks, too, man. I mean, 100%. And the biggest thing, too, I want you guys to watch uh, Jimmy possessions in the pick and roll. Jimmy will get a screen and Jimmy will go inside the arc. And if you didn't know he was playing a basketball game, I think Jimmy is walking through a target or a Walmart. <laughs> I mean, it's like, <whistles> he's just got his head up. He's chilling. He's, oh yeah, man, I can just walk through the middle lane here. Guys, that's not how defense is played. It's the playoffs. RJ, put your body on him, push him out. I mean, they are letting Jimmy waltz through the lane. It's, I thought it was just embarrassing for me to, again, when they have such a physical advantage, when they are so much more athletic, I still feel like, than Miami, and they're just not imposing their will on them the way they should. I need to see a more physical Knicks defense. This was an ugly game. I think you see the absolute worst of the Knicks here. Um, and two, I thought this was a great game from Bam. They played Bam on Julius most of this game, and I mean, it was Xing him out. I mean, he mm-hmm. completely shut down Julius. Julius goes 4-15. 0 of 5 from deep, 10 points. It's a bad RJ game, 5 of 16, 14 points. Brunson, 20 points, forcing the issue a lot. Like I said, I know it's for superstars and for a lead guy like Brunson, I know it's frustrating. And in these big moments, you feel like it's all on my shoulders. I have to go out here and score these buckets because the rest of the guys aren't pulling their weight. I still would like to see him get the offense in rotation, do his thing. Uh, But yeah, more than anything tonight, I was disappointed with the Knicks' defensive effort, and that's something that I've been disappointed with throughout this series. If it's playing drop and letting them get open three-pointers, or if it's in this game, still running pick and roll and just not put a body on it, man. Be physical. That's the thing I was most disappointed with from the Knicks uh, tonight. And again, them settling for threes. That's not your game, guys. Get downhill. Get to the line. Do your thing physically, because I still think, (laughs) even with Miami out-hustling and out-physicaling these guys, I still think they have that advantage. I thought that this was going to be a series in which the Knicks could physically dominate. They are bigger. They are more athletic. 
We saw them grab 39% of available offensive rebounds just last series. We saw them completely overwhelm the Twin Towers in Cleveland. Like, that was supposed to be a clear advantage for them. And instead, the Miami Heat have just done their thing, man, and consistently made them uncomfortable. I agree with you in terms of the Knicks settling. It's tough. You are just looking at such constant help on the interior. And then, yeah, Bam basically just stifled Randall in this game. I mean, I thought that he was unbelievable. And we talk about these other guys in the conversation for best defensive player alive. I don't know that Bam can be AD or Draymond level because he's not that level of rim protector, but he is that level of switchable monster. And he is that level of, I can battle with any big wing who thinks they can go through me and they just can't and just cut off those angles and win that battle repeatedly. And this was a great performance from him. And then you're just sucking Brunson into settling for a bunch of pull-up jumpers, basically. And it was off again. And that's been the story of the series. Game one off, game two on, game three off. Like when he was able to attack clean paints, I thought he did so successfully. There just aren't many opportunities for that. And then it was too many guys who I just don't want dictating possessions with pull-up jumpers or threes at all. I mean, Obi took like a early possession pull-up three in this one. There was a stretch where like IQ took a transition pull-up three and it's just you're getting into these lows and you're not creating quality shots and you're a bad shooting team. And yeah, you go eight of 40 from three. Again, you're not going to win that game. And the Heat are certainly suckering them into that, but some of this is also self-imposed. But the overall activity of this Miami defense, dude, I, the Lakers, when they're locked in, are the best defense in this field. After that, though, I think it's probably Miami. Like, they do not have the personnel who you look at, but how can we deny what they're doing? I mean, let's have this conversation. I mean, you don't think it's Boston? I think Boston would probably be my number two. There's no question who's defending better right now. Miami was 100% defending better than Boston. I mean, they're playing the Knicks, dude. <laughs> yeah, they are. I guess you're right. I mean, the Bucks were able to have a good deal of offensive success, but there's no question Boston is the better defensive pe personnel. They're more talented. But this consistent level of engagement and effort and scheming that the Heat have is unrivaled throughout the league. And... It just continues to make this series nightmarish. And having Jimmy back early in this game, he was going from the mid-range. He was able to eat up free throws. The Heat are outplaying the Knicks, and they have looked better in like almost every quarter of this series. The Knicks were able to pull away with their Stars creation in Game 2 when there was no Jimmy Butler. But I'm sorry, Heat and Heat fans, for picking against you. And I don't know that any team has ever proven me wrong more like, I remember in their finals run, I was like, Boston's more talented. They're going to beat them. Nope. Last year, I didn't think that they could match up with Boston in the talent arena, and they got down to the last possession of that series. And I think that you just have to give the utmost credit to Jimmy as the individual force that he is, competitor, two-way superstar. Spo was the best coach in basketball. Bam for what he's capable of doing defensively. And the supporting cast all around has stepped up. I mean, Struess, Lowry, Gabe Vincent, all these guys, even if they weren't at their best offensively in this game, the consistency of their defensive effort in the shooting ceiling they've unlocked. K-Love, of course, another couple of awesome outlet passes in this game. 
they just play very good collective basketball. But if they make three conference finals in four years, dude, I think it's one of the most impressive feats of this century for Jimmy and for Spo. Because I think those are the two guys most responsible for this team overachieving its talent level. Especially because last year, Lowry sucked offensively in the playoffs. Hero was below expectations. Bam was not good offensively. I mean, he was under 15 a night. And it was superhero Jimmy. And it's been Spo the entire time. So shout out Miami. And again, I sincerely apologize because I do think they're going to win this series. The Knicks got to show me a lot more for me to put my faith in them. I mean, last thing on Miami, too. I mean, that's the other thing about this that makes this run so crazy. Tyler Hero's not out there, man. You're missing 20 a night with your best secondary offensive creator. It's it's super impressive. It's a testament to Spo, what he's able to do come playoff time. It's a testament, I think, to Jimmy as a player, too, and as a leader. And that's where I really want to give him credit, too, is I feel like a lot of other guys that lead teams and lead units – the Heat buy in. They buy into hustling. They buy into effort, and it has continually worked. And I think it's because Jimmy at the head, Jimmy is not concerned with numbers. He's not concerned with awards. Jimmy is about winning, and so is the rest of this roster. And they buy in every single night, every single possession. And it's a lot because they have to, but you're exactly right, man. This is <laughs> unreal. I mean, I. I don't know. I, I would call them, again, like the least talented team to ever do this. I just don't. I don't understand how the Heat keep doing this, man. To be such a disappointing regular season team, to continually outperform expectations in the playoffs, I've never seen anything quite like it. But yes, it is a testament to Spolster and Butler, and uh, they're building their resumes up even more uh, with this run. They out-scheme you, they out-execute you, they out-effort you, and they find a way to have the best player in the series consistently, that being Jimmy Butler. So, shout out Miami, man. Last series we got to touch on here, Sixers Celtics. Boston comes out with a win in this one. James Harden, after his 45-piece in Game 1, has his second consecutive really rough game. And beat a better showing than Game 2, but not enough. What did you take away from this? I want to give a shout-out to the airtight Celtics defense uh, that we saw. I mean, it was like a wake-up call, I think, after that 45-piece from Harden. Mm -hmm. um, and rightfully so. I think it gave him a swift kick in the ass that, hey, we need to pick up our game. We need to play better. Uh, I thought a phenomenal job again from Jalen Brown being airtight on Harden. Uh, great job from Robert Williams on the low block. And this collective, uh, they double Embiid a lot too. And I want to give credit to Embiid. I've been, we've been very critical of him on this show. Uh, this is a great game. It was a really good jump shooting game. He was getting good looks out of the pick and roll. I thought he was more aggressive one-on-one -on, -one on the low block in certain possessions, uh, taking the baseline, taking the lane if it was there, just driving, going to the hole. And again, he dealt with a ton of doubles in this game, man. And I think, again, that's a testament to Embiid as a player. Not many guys have to face this kind of defensive pressure night to night. In that same breath, I mean, a bad Maxi night, a bad Harden night. And I mm -hmm. first want to point the finger at James Harden um, it'd be one thing if Harden was missing step-back threes, if Harden was settling for jump shots and just missing those. There's careless passes leading to bad turnovers. Not just careless passes, I mean bad passes mm -hmm. leading to bad turnovers where I question his level of engagement, right? You see guys who consistently step their level of performance up in the playoffs. Jimmy Butler, and it's not just performance that produces numbers and wins, but it's a mental engagement that I see with Jimmy where he's locked in. 
first possession of this game in transition, what happens in transition, Carson, when you're playing basketball? It's man up. You are getting a body because it's transition. It's not like normal setup defense. Oh, I'm going to get my man. Harden, you're just kind of backpedaling, chilling. There's three guys for the Sixers on this side, two guys for the Celtics on one. Well, hey, if my math does me correctly, there's an open guy on the other side. Bad closeout, easy three. You see a lot of bad Sixers stuff in transition. I mean, and some of that does go on Harden. But offensively, I think you just have to be frustrated with Harden as a player. Like I said, it's one thing if he's settling for that three and it's not hitting. It's another if you're trying to get him looks out of the pick and roll and he's making bad decisions and he's making bad passes and turning the ball over. And then you couple that with when Harden is driving to the rack, the thing that pisses me off more about James Harden is that he's not going to the rack hard. He is not going with a certain move to hit a floater. He is not even trying to go up physically and take you to the glass and get something there. He's trying to foul bait. He is trying to draw a foul. He's trying to off Layla's arms. I can't say the word that I want to, but it's, I can't say either of the two words that I want to say. Soft. It's not, yeah, weak. we'll go with soft. We'll go with soft and weak for this one. It's weak, man. It is weak sauce. It is bush league. It is schoolyard. It's soft. And I don't like watching it because it's not basketball. Um and like I said, too, man, it's not – he looks tentative with the rock in his hands, too, creating an isolation and off the catch, too. It's like he's scared to create. But that's the thing that frustrates me more about Harden than anybody else is that you are deliberately trying to draw a foul. That thing hap- – that's what happens naturally, and I'm so glad that the refs are officiating it the way they are, Carson, too, because the refs reward physical play. They reward you trying to go to the hole hard – and guys mm-hmm. fouling you. They're, they're not going to reward you going up soft and deliberately trying to draw fouls, and I'm glad they did that. And that's what you deserve, James. That's exactly what you deserve. I need to see better from James Harden on all fronts. With that, like I said, I thought Boston played a great defensive game. Um, I thought Jason Tatum did a phenomenal job at closing this game out. I've been very critical of him uh, in clutch time. He did a much better job. What I do want to ask you, Carson, I want to get your full keys to the game, too, what you thought about this. With the stagnation that we see from Philadelphia, with their struggles of creating against this Boston defense, and with the amount of doubles that we see thrown at Joel Embiid, that's something that I also think. I don't think Embiid's the best playmaker, too, right? He doesn't Mm -hmm. make the great pass. But what you can do, what we noted, when you have a guy like P.J. Tucker on the corner who you just do not absolutely respect, oh, he's going to get six to nine points a game, he's going to hit three of his little corner threes, we can live with that. At what point, I know P.J. hustles, man. I know he plays good defense. I know he rebounds well. Continually throughout this series, I have been asking myself watching these games, should they turn to another guy? I mean, should you stick Melton over there? Should you stick McDaniels over there? I, I don't know, man. Should we see the Sixers turn to somebody else? in the starting rotation with these guys other than P.J. Tucker that has a little more creation, that can attack a closeout better and get to the rack, that is maybe not as adept a corner shooter as P.J. Tucker, but it's just more multifaceted as a scorer and a creator where you're not giving up that much defensively. I think maybe it's something that you should do or just try a little bit. I don't know, man. It's not that I've been disappointed with P.J. other than him, you know, kicking up looks that he should take, but... I just wonder if a little more creation would keep Boston a little more honest or if it would open up a new dynamic in the offense. I don't know. That's something I would explore. Do you think that's something that Philly should do? 
Well, I think that if PJ continues to be as willing a shooter as he was in this game, I think he should continue to play. The problem is that this is like the only time that he's taken the wide open looks that are created for him. But he goes three or four from deep in this game. And I thought was able to benefit from a couple of those NB double. All right. Somebody gets the hockey assist, finds him in the corner. So yeah, if he's going to take those shots, which are good shots for him, I think you keep playing him. But after game two, I was asking the exact same question because I'm like, you can't just pass up on a wide open corner look when that's all you do and reset the offense. And that's been an issue for Philly all year, right? What do we do with PJ? Do we put him in the dunker spot? Well, he's not a good athlete. We stick him in the corner. Well, he's not shooting the open looks that we're creating for him. But if he is taking those opportunities, at least at a moderate rate, I think, I don't really know. Yeah, I guess you can go to McDaniels. I think Paul Reed has been the best front court player outside of this, but that obviously doesn't solve your spacing issue. So I think PJ has earned another spot in this starting lineup with the level of shooting and willingness to shoot that we saw from him in this game. But this ultimately does come down to the play from Philly's backcourt. And I think that we have to hone in on Harden because Maxi has mostly been good. This was a bad finishing night from him. It was an off shooting night, but you mentioned the bad turnovers from Harden. And the thing that stands out and what has stood out throughout the playoffs is the guy can't finish at the rim. He is 9 of 40 inside of eight feet in these playoffs, Logan. 22.5%, one bucket inside eight feet a game. That is inexcusable production from a star player. I mean, he was blocked a couple times in this game. He cannot finish against length. He just can't right now. He is getting dominated athletically there, and he's struggling to explode past people, so he's not getting into the lane as much, and when he does get there, he is getting shut down. And as you mentioned, he's foul baiting, and if he doesn't get a foul call, he's pretty much screwed. So this level of Harden, you cannot have any sort of serious contention with. And this has been a major concern for both of us with Philly all along. I mean, Boston is just better top to bottom, and that's why... I confidently picked them to win before this series. Of course, questions about Embiid's health. I took Boston in five. But Harden's inconsistency and the fact that he cannot carry that load night to night has been a storyline throughout these playoffs and has remained a storyline in this series. And the fact that he came out and said for the second time that he is the same guy he's always been and is just in a different role is hilarious. Game one was big-time shot-making from him. He was hunting switches, getting good looks from deep against those bigs cooking from the mid-range, but the guy can't get to the rim, and this was another really bad game from him. And I do think, although Embiid played pretty well overall and was solid reading those doubles, I counted three made threes that were created by Boston doubling him in this game for Philly. He was also bothered a few times by it. Like, that's just the nature of it. He's not going to be consistently good reading doubles. You can give him trouble off the catch with that immediate ball pressure. Sometimes he doesn't anticipate or see doubles coming from behind. And yeah, he's never going to make the brilliant automatic assist. It's going to be more, okay, we've got the defense in rotation. So he didn't kill them there, but he did fine. But I thought he needed to be more aggressive late in this game. I mean, he has two actual points in the fourth quarter and then one that comes in absolute garbage time with 30 seconds left. They need him to be the focal point. They need him to either kill you with his jumper or dominate you physically, get a look, good look at the rim, or draw a double and then work out of that because Harden just can't be the hub. Maxi was off in this one. 
And it is interesting how Boston's handling the whole Embiid thing. Like, I think they're doing a good job overall. Their willingness to guard him with, like, those shorter but stout guys, too, the Grant Williams, the Marcus Smarts, and then bring help as needed, I think has worked reasonably well because, I mean, Embiid doesn't have an easy time just backing those guys down, you know? Like, mostly his advantage is, okay, I can shoot over you. And then they've got great helpers. So Boston is a really, really good defense. I don't want to sell them short. It's just the inconsistency of the effort, some of the lapses we've seen from them that's frustrating. But they won this game because they have more options, and they're a better team top to bottom, as we've said. Tatum and Brown combined for 50. Their guard core combines for 43. Horford, we talked about how in Game 2, he was keeping Embiid honest and willingly taking threes, but he was 1 of 8. This one, he's five for seven, and it wasn't all matched up with Embiid, but there's a couple where Embiid is in the paint as that rim protector, and Horford is able to cash in as a floor spacer. So it's just a more complete team with more options, and we saw that again in this one. And I think, too, I mean, the, the big thing about this to me, 50% of Boston's attempts in this game come from behind the arc, too. I mean, the spacing mm-hmm. is unreal, and that speaks to two things. One, when you're running against a team like Philadelphia, where you have a big that drops like Embiid likes to in driving situations. And I'm not going to fault him. Again, I thought Embiid did a great job at taking the rim away. That's why they have to kick the ball out and swing it in the offense. But when you have two guys drop right in a pick and roll, because that second guy isn't automatically going to go recover to the corner like he needs to, he's likely going to stay with the ball handler and go with Embiid. You're just in a mismatch then. And then it's swinging the ball around the arc. It's an open three. And the spacing that the Celtics have is going to be there every single night with all of these shooters because they do have so many guys who can handle, so many guys who can shoot. And again, at that five spot, when Horford is running it, it's something they're going to be able to turn to in this series all day long. A clinic, you know, because at the point in this game, I was like, man, dude, I don't like how the Celtics continue to settle for threes, but that wasn't the right word. I mean, they're not settling. They're wide open looks that are generated because they're getting downhill. They have... I mean, the drive and kick with Boston is mm-hmm. insane. I, any team that has a defense like this, they're going to be able to pick apart routinely, and they're going to have a lot of open looks. And their shooting might dip off night to night, but, I mean, in a series, I expect it to be rock solid, dude. And that was the other big thing to me is a wealth of their shots came from uh, deep, 97th percentile in these playoffs. I mean, it's crazy that you have that many from deep, but they can kill you like that, and it's not an issue. Um, and all of their looks were wide open. So I was disappointed with some of Philly's effort, too, in that region, but it just comes with the territory, too, when they play their defense like this with Embiid and so much drop when he's not sticking to guys out in the corner because he needs to take the rim away. Um, it's kind of like do if you do, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I And that's why the Celtics essentially are better, too. Uh, but I was amazed at their spacing in this game. I mean, the aggregate offensive skill that they have is just unrivaled. Like anybody at any time, maybe with the exception of the big, but the big, normally Horford, can certainly shoot the ball, can be that creator coming downhill if it's the guard core, if it's one of the two Js, or can be that great spot-up shooter. So yeah, I mean, their drive and kick ceiling is the highest in the NBA. And if they don't win the East, I will be so immensely disappointed because not having to go through Milwaukee, seeing the level from Philly that we have in these last two games. I mean, I'm not going to count out the heat again, Logan, but I would be shocked if Miami beat them in that series. So the door has opened for them, and we'll see if they can go on through it. So 
That's going to do it for us here today, guys. Appreciate you as always. This has been a very fun couple days of basketball, and we will be back in a couple more. So if you enjoyed the show, appreciate you. Very glad to hear that. You can just listen to the pod across all audio platforms, or you can watch us on YouTube, the Volumes YouTube page, which, as we've been saying for a week plus now since the announcement, we are incredibly happy and excited and proud to be a part of. So follow us across social TikTok is at NerdSesh. That's where we're most most consistent with our trivia content. Of course, some podcast clips up there too. Same goes for Instagram at NerdSesh and Twitter at Nerd underscore Sesh. So appreciate you guys as always. And with that, I've been Carson Brever. I have been Logan Camden. And this was NerdSesh. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's peewee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. You can rent a car, a house, even that little black party dress. So why not rent the stuff you need for your home, too? The place to do it is errands. Choose from thousands of new products from the brands you love, online or in store. Pick a payment plan that fits your budget and pay a little at a time until it's yours forever. But if life changes, you can return it anytime or even upgrade it with something new. Rent what you need. It's better at errands. Approval not guaranteed. Restrictions apply. See store for details.